Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 28th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Minister for Media spent several hours yesterday evening fielding questions from members of an Oireachtas committee regarding the resignation of uh, the chair of RTE's board and how Shun Nirahli had sought the resignation of former DG D. Forbes and how she had not informed uh, the Minister of uh, the board's involvement in signing off on an exit package for the former Chief Financial Officer Richard Collins. We are now at the centre of a storm of the national broadcaster and this man has been brought in to clean it up. He sat in the room with you in the chair and he said nothing in terms of your direct questions about the process that was involved for that exit package and whether the board was approved. How can you have confidence in the director general and not in the chair? Because I have confidence in the job of work that uh, the director general is So you do have confidence in the director general? Yes. You do have confidence in the director general? I've before. Okay. Minister, they were a team. They were a team. They close, as evident in his statement last week, with the huge regard he had for Shuna Rattelig. But if Shuna Rattelig misled you in that room last week, which it's clear we've extrapolated here that she did, as far as you're concerned, then so did Kevin Backhurst. You summoned them last Monday to discuss the process involved in the exit package for the top executives such as Richard Collins. And if you were misled by the chair, you were misled by the Director General, and how can you tonight express confidence in him, given that he was complicit as well? Because the direct line of communication between a Minister for Media and RTE is the chair of the board. Minister, that's the chair amazing. provided me with inaccurate information. The and he sat in the room, he sat in the room and listened to that inaccurate information be given to you. He sat there and knowingly sat there and let that misinformation be given to you. Either that or nobody knows what's going on in RTE whatsoever. I think the the DG's role is is very distinct. And again, I'm saying my role uh, is and is or my connection is with the chair of the board. That's an amazing. That's who I've responded to. That's an amazing. That's an amazing admission. That you have two of the most senior. Why bother summon him at all? Was he there to make the tea? 
Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles calling into question uh, the new Director General of RTE's position in that interaction yesterday with uh, the Minister for Media, Catherine Martin. Let's speak uh, to the Chair of uh, the Media Committee, Neve Smith, who's on the line with us. And uh, a very good morning to you. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it was a long meeting, a lot of questions, uh, and uh, indeed some new information. Uh, that uh, was put before your committee yesterday. Do you think that the Minister is in the clear as such now? Well, I think she put up a very robust defence of her position. I think the the question going into that meeting last night might have been, um, for most people, why do the interview on prime time when there obviously was an issue of deep concern to her um, prior to the interview herself. But she came out fighting last night, and I say that, um, when she provided more ef- evidence to the committee last night of the miscommunication, of the um, almost the unwillingness of the chair to accept uh, the issue the minister was raising with her verbally through phone calls with her department. And then when the issue did deepen and worsened, the uh, officials obviously informed the former chair that the minister was of the view that she would be writing to express her disappointment about the misinformation. And at that point, being told by the, who is now the former chair that she was not willing to accept a letter definitely did pose a huge problem for the minister. And when she had committed to that interview in prime time, at that point, she really had no no op- no option but to become uh, open and transparent about the issue. There, there being an issue itself within the, the, the board of RT at that point. Were you surprised, though, that it wasn't a question of being open and transparent after being asked questions, but instead what happened was that uh, the minister's team of handlers spoke to the researchers in RTA and told Prime Time what questions the minister would be willing to answer. Yeah, well, I suppose, Michael, as, as we think about this and we watch how events unfolded, had she not done that, what would, if you know, if you play that forward a few hours into the next morning and she'd gone on that interview and the team, the official handlers hadn't made the researchers aware that there was going to be an issue. It was going to be breaking news. She knew, the minister knew the information had been leaked at this point. Had she said nothing about that, gone and done the prime time interview and then the next morning this all explodes, you could have had a general election on your hands to be honest. I think it would have mm. been such, uh, it would have been a such catastrophic consequences for the minister and the government okay. had she not been honest and transparent in that interview. Alright, uh, but uh, it, it was uh, Shun Nirali, who had to go or felt compelled to go because of uh, that TV appearance, uh, as we heard Shane Castle say a, a moment ago, she was part of a team together with Kevin Backhurst, uh, the uh, new Director General of RTE. Uh, and he was asking, uh, why didn't Kevin Backhurst uh, say something about that exit package uh, if it was wrong of Shun Nirali not to say something about uh, the board's involvement? Why was it not wrong for the DG not to say something or was he making the tea? Later on in your meeting, another Senator, Michal Carrigy, said he didn't have any confidence in Kevin Backhurst at this stage. Uh, Is there a question over the Director General's position? I think there will be more questions as the days move on and the questions, I suppose, widen out into the scope of who was at the meeting. We now know that along with the DG, obviously, we're officials from the department. We now know from last night's deliberations um, down to the scrutiny of, of, of Senator Castles that uh, officials had the information, were informed, did have the paperwork uh, that should have 
actually being used to inform the minister, despite the the, for, the, the the chair not informing her, that there were new and broad sweeping changes within the remuneration package, that they had in fact approved the exit package for Mr Collins. And I think it will open the debate um, about for the DG. I think he will have questions to answer. And as you know, last night we, we opened a standing invitation to the former chair, Shuni Raleigh, and former sec gen who would have been deeply involved in the process and, and the information carrying, if you like, to the minister, and that being Catherine Nickens. So uh, as, a, as a committee, we've written to both of those ladies and asked them if they'd like to make themselves available to come forward to the committee. I suppose at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Michael, we are trying to move it on. There were further questions about uh, exit packages. I myself asked if she was aware of Mr David Nally's exit package. It became apparent to me over the weekend. Tell me about that, David uh, Nally, if you would, because you described this as la-la land stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it really is. This is someone who was head and in a leadership role, in a very important leadership role, albeit in, in RT around current affairs and news. Um, we know, we now know that an official complaint had been made by colleagues of his staff that were under his careful watch and guidance had made complaints about him. Mm. RTE, we now know that RTE went into a very expensive process that was of a six-figure sum, is my understanding, to bring in a, a team to investigate the allegations that were being made and more worryingly those allegations and those complaints were actually upheld there were many allegations there were many allegations where they're including uh, an altercation with Fran McNulty that's correct and that has been written about in the media uh, and discussed on many occasions before but it hasn't actually come up But uh, uh, as part of our discussions but why it fits into all of this is it is my understanding that that gentleman in my view should have uh, faced disciplinary action I mean uh, those charges mm. were held up against him and instead of facing disciplinary action there was in fact a new role a new role, a beggar's belief, a new role created within the organisation of RTE and not only that it was a new role that was handsomely paid as well. There was no demotion in terms of payment. And um, after 18 months or so, that gentleman uh, was uh, exited on another handsome package. So my question to the minister last mm. night was, was she informed of this? Did she know the details of it? Uh, and what other exit packages are there out there that we're not aware of yet? Right. Hopefully and there d- aren't any. D- just talk me back over that. When you say a, a new role, uh, do you mean a job was created that hadn't existed before. Uh, Correct. And that that job was created after an investigation that cost an awful lot of money, a six-figure sum, you say. Uh, And after the investigation, the complaints against David Nally were upheld. Uh, And normally or ordinarily, some form of disciplinary action would follow because it must have been a very serious investigation. We hear of an altercation with Fran McNulty. Uh, You say there's more to it than that. Uh, uh, But instead of disciplinary action against David Nally, they created a new job for him. So his old job had to be filled by somebody else. Uh, So that cost continued. A new cost to... Uh, move David Nally sideways uh, was uh, created because of this new position and then after a couple of years he left that job with an exit package a golden handshake 
And it wasn't even a couple of years, Mike. I think it was something like 18 months, not even two years. I mean, it is, um, to use the phrase, bonkers stuff to think that that could happen. And how demoralising that must have been, not only for the staff who had the courage in the first place to make the complaint, that can't have been easy to make it against who would have, somebody who would have been their supervisor, their superior, somebody who was meant to be leading by example. It must have taken great courage to do that in the first place. And when that was done, to find that the DG who was in place at the time, the former DG not only uh, ignore that you could argue but rewarded the culprit, rewarded him by creating a new position um, that didn't demote him in any way, I don't believe it, it lessened his, his salary in any way and he remained in that position for 18 months how intimidating that must have been for the staff who were left behind to pick up the pieces after that in investigation so I think following mm. on from that, the Minister has commissioned a report around culture and I certainly would be looking forward to hear from that advisory committee, I think okay. it's of the utmost importance that we get them in now in front of the committee uh, when that report is published and the Minister mm. did confirm last night that will be published at the end of this month and I think the next move we have to make is to, to actually hear firsthand the uh, experience and the stories that uh, staff would have shared with the okay. advisory committee well, I'm sure, I'm sure the staff, I'm sure the staff who complained about David uh, Nally uh, indeed all of the staff in RTE will be very very annoyed uh, about this particular story uh, a new story to us here this morning and if you bear with me. I think we can hear some of the interaction between yourself, Neve Smith and the Minister about this uh, as it happened at uh, the committee hearing yesterday evening. This is somebody who has had complaints made against them. Those complaints are investigated at a very handsome cost to RTE. Not, there is no disciplinary action taken. There is a new position created for that person. They're sidetracked, moved sideways in other words. They're still in harm's way of the staff, if you ask me, when a, a, a complaint has been upheld. Not only that, they continue on this path, they're on a very handsome salary, and within less than two years, they exit the organisation and exit with a package. Would that concern you, Minister? Yeah, well, I, I think whatever happened there, this is another reason why we need the former DG to, to come before committee or to communicate um, in relation to this and shed light on, on what exactly happened there. Um, so I'm know, I can't Mr. comment upon, com- on that if I don't have any knowledge on it. Okay, uh, well, that's really to my question. So the, the current DG, the former chair, the board, nobody has informed you, given you any information around this particular... Uh, because I think that's a, a huge public interest too. Well, when I, I had no uh, knowledge, it was something that was not notified to my department... Um, I did ask last week about it and um, I was told that for, for legal reasons I, I couldn't get details on anything. Sorry, I'm just going to put you over that. You asked who what last week? In, in the meetings with the, the, the DG and the chair. Yeah. But for legal reasons I... Because, about as this you case said, with Mr Nally? About that case, yeah. And you were given no information because of legal reasons? Yes. I don't understand that at all, Nave Smith. Can you explain to me why the minister cannot be confided in? A, a, a confidentiality clause uh, obviously uh, prohibits people from speaking publicly uh, about the agreement, uh, but uh, does that exclude the minister as well from uh, being privy to that information? Well, I don't know how the minister can be enabled to do her job. I mean, it is withholding information, critical and crucial information for her in making decisions. I mean, the first, the next thing you're going to hear from RTE is we need money and we need funding. And that's against a backdrop where there's 
been drip drip feed but exit package after exit package it would be it would seem uh, and these confidentiality clauses that arguably is protecting somebody who actually should have been facing disciplinary action not an exit package it's just crazy stuff or la la land stuff as you put it last night Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Much appreciated as always. Neve Smith is a Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan and chair of uh, the Oireachtas Media Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. We're getting used to it, aren't we? Uh, well, at least slowly, we're getting used to recycling our bottles and our, our cans in uh, the machines under the return deposit recycling labels. Uh, eventually, all of uh, the plastic bottles and cans will have uh, one of these logos, which will entitle you to a, a refund of fifteen or twenty-five cent. Uh, they must have it by the 1st of May. If they don't have the logo which entitles you to your refund, uh, well, um, there may be a problem. Uh, They may not be on the shelves. Uh, Indeed, uh, this is something that was reported in the Irish Independent yesterday, which uh, predicted that some products will vanish off shop shelves and the shelves of off licences. Vincent Jennings is uh, the CEO of the Convenience Stores and News Agents Association. A very good morning to you, Vincent. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. Uh, you believe that there's uh, enough choice that it won't bother people, but some people uh, obviously like certain brands and some brands aren't going to comply with this scheme. Good morning, Michael. Um, yeah, sorry, just as a correction, that's the first of June as opposed to the first of May, I think you'd mentioned. I beg your pardon. First of June, everything yeah. the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, this is an enormous logistical operation. I mean, there's two billion units, um, a billion plastic bottles and a billion cans each year uh, that come through uh, retail outlets. And uh, bringing them all back in through a scheme for uh, effectively the circular economy or to, to, to bring to fruition the circular economy is a huge job. And um, it, 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 it can never be anticipated that you'll get 100%. It's not 100% in any country, but you would be hoping that it would be reaching something similar to what it is in Scandinavia and Germany, 94 95%. Latvia only went into it a couple of years ago. They're already in excess of 80%. So it'll be a slow burn and mm. it will it will come through. In, in respect to your particular query, will there be products? With, well, that will be down to individual producers and individual... Uh, um, um, I think that certainly Irish indigenous uh, businesses should be given, us, given assistance. It is a state-sponsored scheme and if the state, if, if, if through actions of the state uh, are causing difficulties for small craft beer producers um, and small beverage and mineral water makers, I think that certainly they have an obligation to ensure that they level the playing pitch and make things uh, that bit easier for those people. Why shouldn't they? Well, it's quite difficult. It would seem, again, uh, the Irish Independent uh, report yesterday highlighted how difficult it can be. For example, Premier International Beers in County Mead employs 12 people to cover putting the labels on their cans, they say it would cost €70,000 uh, and that that would mean uh, that they'd have to let two of the 12 staff go. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's unconscionable that, that something like that would happen. And to be perfectly honest with you, um, I mean, these are the things that should have been ironed out by the state um, at the time that they were going full tilt onto this. Mm. Um, it was 
better the programme for government. It wasn't something that was was, was was delivered by industry. Sorry, it's been delivered by industry, but it wasn't clamoured by industry. But we were we were told by the department, you'll have to you'll have to do this. And um, many of the people just weren't getting access to government departments for further information, such as the craft brewers. I mean, they've they've come, they've been dragged into it very late. I've uh, heard some people who are somewhat irritated by uh, how some cans or bottles have the logo and others don't and that you have to go looking for them, uh, they're hard to see and all of that sort of thing. Uh, all of that will iron itself out, as you say, by the 1st of June. Uh, they'll all have to have them, so you won't have to look uh, for them uh, come the summer. Uh, but are, are you hearing complaints of that sort? Yeah, there, there are a number of observations. I mean, look, every observation is, is, has validity insofar as if it's made with, 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 with somebody's you know, good intentions or their own experiences. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that I think that we all have to be incredibly conscious of is that we're not disadvantaging somebody, that we're not marginalising somebody or making, some, making somebody's life more difficult. So in particular, those people who were receiving home deliveries, if they can't get the product back in the same convenient fashion as they receive the product, there's a problem there. And, 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 and you know, somebody has to ensure that those people, be they from infirmity or sickness or, or, or just choice, if they um, are being disadvantaged, then we've got to actually relook at it and, and see how can we make their lives easier. That you or could probably back to where they were. That, that you could give uh, your returns uh, as you're getting your delivery back to the same driver. Yeah, well, my, Michael, I mean, I know it was ill-fated, but there was a scheme to, to, due to come into place in Scotland um, very recently, and it was at the last moment aborted. But as part of that scheme, home deliveries were catered for or were being catered for by some of the very companies who um, have refused to do it here. Mm. So, you know, yeah. somebody has to answer questions as to, you know, are, 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 Irish, are, are Irish home deliveries less, less, less important than Scottish ones? Mm. Uh, other people uh, are just uh, wondering what kind of feedback you've had. I, I've heard from other people who say, well, I, I used to always put my plastic bottles and tins into my green bin. Uh, I was recycling. Uh, and now, uh, instead of uh, just putting them out in the bin uh, where I was doing the right thing for the environment, I, I'm given a job uh, and uh, uh, an almost impossible task of finding somewhere to put all these bottles and cans because I can't put them in the bin and I don't want to be going over to the shop with uh, the odd bottle or can every now and then. Uh, so what do I do? Where do I pile them up? Uh, look, it definitely is going to cause for a period, well, for all time, it's going to make for a change uh, for people. They're going to have to do it. But I mean, we've had to, there was a time when nobody did any recycling or nobody did any binning. They had to have one bin, then two, and in some places, three and four. True. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're just having to move with it. The, the, the purpose behind this, right, mm. is to try to ensure that we have as many of that that is recyclable coming back into the system. Though there, there was no doubt whatsoever, 75% of bottles or 70% of bottles and cans were making their way through the system. So in other words, 70% of people were complying in mo- most cases. But that meant that there were 600,000 units every year 
that were not. They were either being incinerated yeah. or lining our hedgerows or otherwise. Mm. And we either, unfortunately, it is the case that the majority have to pay for the sins of the minority once again. Same with crime as well. Mm. Uh, but 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 this is for us to have a circular economy. I'm not a fan of many parts of this. Yeah. But if we end up with cleaner material that we can actually have in, on the island of Ireland, a recycling facility that actually brings stuff back and makes it again in that eternal loop, I think we'll have done ourselves. Yeah. And and from a jobs perspective, I think we'll have done ourselves. Okay. We had a text from somebody there uh, last week complaining that they did exactly what you're saying, wanted to do the right thing, went back uh, with uh, six bottles, uh, I think uh, they said, and two of them were not accepted. They said there was nothing wrong with uh, the bottles. They were in perfect condition. Uh, but uh, that's to do with weight, uh, as I understand it from your comments in the Irish Independent, Vincent. Yeah, there is. There's a technical reason for that. And to be honest with you, I mean, the, the return uh, with people who have been charged, uh, you know, it's a not-for-profit organisation, but they have they set up, based upon, I suppose, best of advice to them, uh, they set up a system whereby they, they, they set out the criteria for, for every last piece of this and everything. And they probably were working on best advice in terms of where it was in the other any of the other 40 countries that it was in place. But uh, they probably, I would have thought, I mean, they probably made the cushions too, 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 too short. Um, there, there has to be a greater level of tolerance so the, the barcode is red, but it's, 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 that's just one of the tick boxes. It also has to make sure that that barcode relates to a particular, what they know to be a container. And all of this is to, to, as a fraud prevention thing. One of the mm. biggest problems we had, Michael, when they were devising the scheme was because the North of Ireland Department would not go in on an all-Ireland basis, they had to... They had to engineer a whole load of additional anti-fraud measures to prevent Daisy the Cow type of operation from occurring from stuff coming down from the north, which for which there had been no uh, deposit charge, but, but people claiming the deposit. So the, the barcode that is on, the, on it picks up and it, you, it knows it to relate to a particular uh, uh, a plastic bottle or can. And, you know, you're talking about micrograms. It doesn't take much to throw that out. Mm. These things will be ironed out, certainly. I mean, and, and, and there have been people who thought, and they, once they knew the system was coming into place, they thought that they'd be stocking up for stuff and that they'd be, charged, they'd be uh, bringing in stuff that had no, had no uh, deposit charged mm. on it and mm. get money back. All kinds of attempts and everything like that have worked. And, and like, everybody in the, in the whole industry would apologise for anybody who's been disconvenienced from this or inconvenienced. Mm-hmm. And I can mm-hmm. absolutely say... Yeah. Nobody, if you paid a deposit, you are entitled. That's yeah. the word I will use. You're entitled, you are entitled to, yeah. to yeah. your but, money. But, but if, I, if I buy a bottle of water to go to recycle the bottle after I've used it, uh, I won't get the refund if I didn't finish the water because the bottle will be too heavy. Is it uh, that I have to make sure that the bottle is empty when I put it into the machine? That's the way it is worldwide now. It isn't just unique to Ireland. Mm-hmm. And the same with all of uh, the other products. Uh, last time we spoke to you, you were telling us uh, that a, a lot of news agents uh, wouldn't be able to afford these machines. Uh, what's the experience so far? Have people come back into news agents and looked for refunds? Well, you see, there is an exemption for any person whose premises is less than 250 square metres. Mm, but um, are customers coming be... back not knowing that? 
Um, most likely, yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, but they'd only do it once. Um, yeah, and then they have, they have to go elsewhere for, for to get their uh, refund. Um, it's it's something that when the system was being designed originally, they thought that it would only be in the supermarkets that the reverse vending machines would be. But our industry um, and, and our, our members, um, 1,100 of them went out and they, 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 they bought these machines um, or they've leased the machines because they didn't want to give uh, to t- the Tesco's and the Dunn's and the and the Aldi's mm. and the Lidl's an advantage. And so they have put their hands in their pockets. And once again, I have to say, the state was very quick to actually demand that this be done as part of the programme of government. The state has not offered one single penny, not a single penny, by way of grants or tax allowances or otherwise, for anybody going out and buying these machines, which which begin at thirteen thousand, and if you have it outside, you've got to have a housing on it, and most likely it's going to cost between twenty eight and thirty thousand euro. Wow, a lot of money. Yeah. All right, but as I said at the outset, uh, we're all getting used to it, albeit slowly, but uh, in time it line. And Michael, I mean, you know, I mean, feel free at any stage to come back and get progress reports and the like, because I mean, it is something that mm-hmm. um, it is a change, but it is. I think it's a change for the better. Let's hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Vincent, thank you indeed. Uh, And uh, as always, we'll ask our listeners for progress reports and how they feel uh, about how it's working for them. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Vincent Jennings is uh, the CEO of uh, the Convenience Stores and News Agents Association. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. The Iraqis Justice Committee has uh, published its uh, report on uh, policing after uh, long hearings uh, with many witnesses uh, in front of it. It says that witnesses uh, who spoke uh, to the members were critical of uh, the operating policing model, which they said had resulted in a less visible guarded presence. Witnesses highlighted that as part of this model, there remain two, three county divisions of Mayo, Roscommon, Longford and Louth, Cavan, Monaghan respectively. It was argued uh, that it would be better for Louth and Mayo to be designated as separate district as uh, these areas have distinct policing needs and issues that would not be comparable to the other counties in their division and as a result of that the committee is recommending uh, that the policing model for Louth should be re-examined with a view towards designating Louth as a separate district. Let's speak now to Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary of the Garda Representative Association. A very good morning to you and thank you for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. What do you make of uh, this recommendation from the committee? Good morning, Michael. Well, firstly, I would say we're very pleased in general with the recommendations that the committee have made on a range of policing issues and we would feel that uh, this particular committee have really um, reflected the views of the GRA and the views of the members that we represent. And they definitely have vindicated our perspective and our stance on a number of policing issues, issues and challenges that we would see in policing, in industrial relations and pay determination. Um, so we are very pleased and we would really hope that the majority of these recommendations will be taken on board by both the Commissioner and the Minister and that they will be put into place. Um, of course, you mentioned... Uh, the three-county model, uh, and of course this is of, of major significance to your listeners and of course to myself who spent 16 years of my service as a guard in Louth and always found the idea that they were having this three-county model you know, completely unworkable. Um, an internal Garda report has already acknowledged that a three-county model 
doesn't work. And the plan was actually scrapped in divisions like Donegal, and that was earmarked for amalgamation with Sligo and Leitrim, and also Waterford, Kilkenny and Carlow. It was scrapped there because it's just not workable. Uh, so we would say there's absolutely no commonality or similarity between the policing requirements of, let's say, rural West Cavan and urban centres like Dundalk and, of course, the computer belt, commuter, sorry, belt of Drummond mm. and South Louth. And we believe there is very significant risk associated with spreading division resources such as roads, policing, drugs or protective services across those three counties. OK, but could you not say the same of our day or Dunleer? Uh, I mean, the policing needs are very different to those of Dundalk or Drogheda, are they not? No, but they are. They form part of County Loud, and County Loud was always a standalone division on its own. And of course, obviously, we had the two big provisional towns of Dundalk and Drogheda. But we, because of the, the large resources that we had in Drogheda and Dundalk, we were always able to support our D as well. Although the big units might not necessarily be in our D, they're within you know a very quick travelling distance. So, you know, RD was perfectly safe and that it was, you know, in the centre of the two big urban districts and it had that backup of Drogheda personnel and of, of Dundalk personnel to back it up if anything major happened. The difficulty now is if something major happens in Cavan, they're relying on units perhaps to come from Loud, like the big units like perhaps ASU or uh, major detective units to come in from Loud to back them up. And, and the difficulty you have also is that if it's a division on its own and, you know, Templemore are about to, to, to put particular guards out on the street or probationary guards on the street. The division as a whole is going to look for additional resources. The majority of them are going to go to Loud. So in another way then, Cavan and Monaghan is, is that depleted because obviously the big urban districts where the policing requirements are, are going to be sent the additional resources. So it, it mm. kind of works in both ways. Loud is at a disadvantage but obviously Cavan and Monaghan are also at a disadvantage as well. Mm. And are uh, people left vulnerable? Uh, is there a fear that Gardaí could be distracted uh, to an incident in Cavan, let's say, uh, as part of a, a plan to carry out something bigger in Louth? Possibly. There's always that, that risk because it's the one division and it's been managed by the one chief superintendent with all these hubs in, in various places around the division. So that's always the risk that, you know, it, it was, the resources are going to be taken from one particular area to police uh, uh, something up in Cavan. And if you actually look at it geographically, you know, the, the divide between the very top of Monaghan and right over to, to parts of Loud, which actually include parts of Town now since the districts were actually expanded, it's a huge geographical area and to ask one chief to have the remit over that entire area and to police it from the one bank of, of resources just to us seems absolutely unfathomable and we would be re- we would be fully behind the Justice Committee's recommendations that this be re-examined and looked at and allowed to go back to as it was, which was a standalone division on its own. Without me? Uh, well, Meath falls within a different geographical area. That falls into uh, the eastern region. Mm. Um, and look at traditionally... Loud no, but down as far as Bettystown, uh, Laytown, uh, and that. People had long yeah. argued uh, for that to happen because uh, it seemed inexplicable that they'd call uh, 999 uh, and uh, be uh, speaking to somebody in Ashburn about something that was happening a couple of miles down the road from the station in Drogheda. Yeah, and, and unbelievably then some people who are just over the border would make a phone call and actually that call would be answered in Galway because Galway is part of the northwestern region where Loud currently sits. So look, at when I would have started as a guard many years ago in Drogheda, I was stationed in Loud Mead 
and it, it seemed to make more sense, obviously, because Louth and Meath actually border each other. I don't know what the argument is there, but but certainly we would we would definitely sit on the argument that Louth certainly needs to be separated from Cavan Monaghan because it's just not working at the moment. Okay, uh, can I ask you about your upcoming conference? Uh, the Garda Commissioner is somewhat. Uh, amused or confused as to why uh, the Garda Representative Association won't be extending an invitation. Can you explain why? Well, I suppose that decision to not invite the Commissioner to the conference was taken after some deliberation by our Central Executive Committee last month, and I completely understand and I support that decision. Uh, We would be somewhat surprised by the Commissioner's statement that he's baffled by the decision. We would have informed Garda Management and the Commissioner's Office immediately after that decision was made that that we had come to that decision, and then we would have followed that with formal correspondence outlining the rationale for the decision. And I mean, the rationale is simply that only just a few, short few months ago, our membership voted uh, almost 99% of them that they did not have confidence in the Garda Commissioner. And we would feel that in the months since that particular ballot, nothing really has been done to address the serious concerns that actually led us to that vote in the first place. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Tara McManus is uh, the Assistant General Secretary of uh, the Garda Representative Association, the GRA. Now, some comments coming to us uh, this morning, a lot lot of people in touch actually uh, about uh, recycling or refunding uh, the money that you pay to recycle your plastics. Paddy and Terman Fekin says, it's the greatest trick stroke con ever. Uh, he says uh, in the 70s when uh, the plastic companies got the USA families to do their part in the plastic pollution problem, the result was that the plastic companies made even plastic for the next 50 years uh, and it was unchecked. Uh, the onus is still being put on us, not the industry. Thank you indeed. Uh, somebody saying uh, that uh, there was no return label on bottles that they bought. So when you are charged the fee and can't bring them back via the new machine unless you bring them into customer service. Well, I don't think that's the way it's meant to work. I don't know what the answer to that is, uh, but I don't think that's the way it's meant to work. I think if you're charged the extra 15 or 25 cent, the bottle should be refundable. If it's not refundable, you shouldn't be charged in the first instance. But I don't know uh, why that happened. But thanks uh, for bringing that to our attention. Our phone number is 0419832000. If you want to comment, you can also text us on 086 1800 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Um, somebody in touch with us saying that you can buy uh, what is it a large coke uh, in a supermarket uh, for four euro and uh, there's a 25 pence uh, cent deposit on that uh, which can be uh, refunded uh, across uh, the border in another shop a large coke same product 238 instead of four euro thank you uh, for that uh, somebody else saying uh, coffee cups in hospitals and shops plastic gloves plastic bags used uh, by corporations are they recyclable uh, well I don't think coffee cups are but I think all plastics can go into the recycling bin that you have at home if that's a, a green bin or otherwise uh, somebody else says it's just a double charge for people I pay for my bins to be taken away now I have to pay a tax for my bottles and cans. Thanks very much. Of course, uh, you are paying that extra, but it is refundable when you return it. Uh, You're asked to do 
that extra job that you wouldn't have had to do before, uh, but it shouldn't cost you any more uh, in, ter- in monetary terms. Now, uh, let's uh, turn our attention uh, to Johnstown in County Mead. Ain2 councillor uh, Emer Tobin joins us uh, because uh, she's organising a protest uh, this Saturday about what you say is a lack of amenities in Johnstown. Good morning to Emer uh, and thanks for joining us. Uh, what's the problem? Good morning, Michael, and, and to your listeners this morning. Well, it's not even a lack of amenities. There's, there's no amenities. So this is an area just outside Navan. There's about um, 12,000, 12,500 residents, and it is an area that is about 25 years old. So quarter of a century, this area has been in development. New estates been added every few years, and there has been no matching community infrastructure. So there's no playground there's no playing pitches and there is no community centre. And this has a huge effect on the social fabric of the area. So where do people meet up to get to know each other? Where do children gather to, to play on pitches? You know, there's so much that is missing from this area. And there has been a palpable sense of growing frustration in recent years that promises made over the years by the local authority haven't uh, materialised or produced the, the long-awaited amenities. And I suppose what brought this whole thing to uh, a head for me was I always put in a, a progress update request to the council every couple of months just saying, how are plans moving in the direction to provide uh, the community centre or a playground or playing pitches? And they usually, you know, say well, things are moving in the right direction or um, the four acres of land which are to be transferred from a developer to the council for the actual site of the community amenities. Um, they, they allude to it always in terms that it is being transferred. And over the course of the last four and a half years, as I've been a councillor, there was always the impression that things were moving on further. So when I got the progress update here in January of this year, it was still in the present tense. Um, my answer was literally word for word similar to an answer I, I received in early 2021. So it, it, it led me to believe that is there any urgency to this project? Is there any prioritisation? Um, is the council just approving planning after planning application? Um, or is it putting a, a prioritisation on something that is incredibly important, important to a huge number of people living in this area? Mm. Okay, but uh, four and a half years later, uh, you're deciding to stage a, a protest uh, with local elections looming. They're not connected, I take it? Well, I suppose you'd be criticised if you did nothing. <laughs> and it's possible you could be criticised if you do something. But, you know. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, as I said, it, it was this response I received in January this year, which said... Literally what I was told three years ago, which which really kind of gave me the impetus to, to do something more um, activist because, you know, you can make as many phone calls, you can require as many meetings, you can engage with the executive on this. But if nothing is changing in terms of the promises that have been made to me and to the residents of, of, of the area, you have to get up and do something, uh, Michael, you know, and... You know, I wouldn't mind if this was something that was delayed by a year or two. But this estate started in, in, and not a state, this entire area of Johnstown outside Navan. You know, the first house was built 24, 25 years ago. And for all the children and families that have, you know, moved mm. out of this state into, you know, got on with their own lives and on to college, none of those children were able to avail of any community amenities. And I'm thinking now, I don't want another generation of children not having the basic standard amenities that other towns like Dunshockland has or Afoy or Kells. Populations in those towns are much smaller. And thankfully, they have their playing pitches and their playgrounds and their parks. Mm. So it begs the question, why is this part of Navan been overlooked for, for so many years? Yeah, well, you know I, mean? I wonder... There is a site... Um, sorry, Michael, to interrupt you. There is a site, there's four acres... It's been promised to the council um, as part of the planning uh, uh, approval given by the council to a developer. I've spoken to the developer on this. They're 100% on board on this. But I don't understand that year after year, year is following year. And it's still, we're, we're talking about, yes, the transfer of the lands is, is progressing. Yes, we are appointing consultants to design a master plan for this area. But nothing moves on from is happening, is moving. Mm. And in fairness, when you try and yeah. pin the council down for exact commitment okay. and exact information, it's in- so, so. So the council has said to you it's about to happen. Yes, but that right. information, that, so, that line has so, been so, set so, for the last so three years. So if that happens after the protest, uh, will you be claiming victory ahead of the local elections? Well, it's not about claiming victory. It's trying to ah, hold the council to account. Well, that's what, that's that's what politicians. That's what politicians do. I, I mean, you'd have to ask yourself why, after four and a half years of strong representation by elected member of uh, the council to the executive, has not resulted I- I- in the council acting more speedily 
would a public protest uh, have uh, a better impact? Uh, are you sure that you haven't you're not you haven't formed the opinion that this is about to happen so that uh, you'll uh, stage a protest and claim victory? Well, God, that'd be great news, Wouldn't Michael, it? if it's about to happen. What I would be absolutely over the moon, and I'm sure an awful lot of other people would. But during COVID, obviously, we were very, very restricted in, into what we could do. So at the time, I set up a Johnstown Community Forum and uh, consulted with all the community groups and, and uh, a large number of uh, activist residents in Johnstown. We had about four Zooms o- over the course of about a year and a half just to see how we could operate as a pressure group on the council. So this is going back two, two years ago, Michael. So we, we requested a meeting with the executive. We worked extremely hard in, 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 in growing the membership of the forum because it was only with having a large number of people that we could put pressure on the council. So this isn't something, Michael, that just started up a few weeks ago that we said, oh, should we have a protest? Mm. This is something that has been working okay. in the background to put pressure on the council because it, it's a huge number of people affected. And it doesn't make sense that development you know, charges mm. ahead without matching amenities. Well, I'm sure people uh, in Johnstown would uh, agree and feel that they've uh, been neglected. You're inviting them to join you at uh, the council offices at noon on Saturday. That's correct. So just one hour, we'd, we'd like to have a good a good presence. And, you know, um, we chose Saturday to have the, the protest. Uh, you know, it's easier for people because they're not working to be able to attend and it's just to send a strong message mm-hmm. to people of Johnstown, over 12,500 people with all their families, you know, all, all trying to just improving the social fabric of their community. You know, it is much easier and much better for people when there is a, a place to meet up. There's pitches to, to watch matches on. Mm-hmm. You know, only the other day, this, this man was saying to me that he'd love to be able to go up in a summer's evening to be able to watch a match rather having to, to, you know, go into Navan. You know, the traffic mm-hmm. issue there is, is quite difficult for many people. You know, families have to drive over to Blackwater Park if they want to bring their okay. children to a playground. And it'd be so much easier okay. if it was in the area where they live. 12 o'clock Saturday afternoon outside of uh, the council offices if uh, people wish to join you for the protest. Emer Tobin, thank you for joining us this morning. Now, let's uh, go to some more of uh, the comments uh, coming to us uh, today. Jessica in touch saying that the mess at RTA just gets better and better as the weeks go by. It's just bordering on the ridiculous at this stage. If RTA was a prime privately owned company heads would have rolled months ago. Why is the government allowing this level of mismanagement and incompetence to continue? Heads should have rolled many times over by now, says Jessica. Well, quite a a few (laughs) of uh, the top brass have gone at this stage. Jessica, uh, I think one of the big questions that's been asked is uh, that if uh, they had mismanaged their departments, as you put it, why did they get golden handshakes? In one case, €450,000. It's incredible. Uh, Tom says he feels that the only solution for the debacle, as he puts it, at RTE is for the current board to resign along with uh, the media minister. The public have no faith in the board and don't trust the minister to rectify the problems within the state board. They all need to go. Tom says we need to start again from scratch 
and get some fresh blood into RTE. Claire in touch with us as well about RTE saying she won't be paying her TV licence until this mess at RTE is cleared up and there's full disclosure on their part. Why should she be expected to help fund an organisation that will not be transparent about how they're spending the public's money? And she says she's not the only person who feels like this. She will happily revert to paying it when all of the questions have been answered and the company have outlined how they got themselves into this current situation. Thanks very much indeed, Claire. I suppose uh, there's one simple answer uh, to the question you asked, which is why should you be expected to pay your TV licence fee uh, it's because it's the law uh, and uh, if you break the law in this case you face the prospect of fines and even imprisonment but thank you for your call to the programme today our phone number 0419832000 text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. It's very hard to watch television these uh, days uh, with people in rubble emaciated, uh, people begging for baked beans and drinking water from toilets. That's if you're still alive in Gaza where there's a death toll now of in excess of 30,000 people. Uh, the situation is uh, being compounded uh, because of uh, the bombing of Gaza uh, and uh, the difficulty that that has posed in uh, terms of producing food. Let's speak uh, to Edward uh, Saloum, who's Humanitarian Advocacy Lead with Oxfam Ireland. Edward, good morning to you again and thank you for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Tell us uh, uh, about the two-month-long golden time that uh, farmers in Gaza talk about, if you would, please. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Michael. So February and March are um, usually what we call the golden time, which is the optimum time for uh, um, planting crops in in, in, uh, Gaza, and especially in northern Gaza, um, for much of the fruit and vegetable crops, which is the the bulk of uh, the crops there. And this is now gone. And this is um, in part because of the um, indiscriminate bombing of farm farmlands and uh, greenhouses being raised in the in in, uh, in the bombings, and in part also because of complete denial of access to these farmlands to the farmers, um, and this denial takes the form of just denial of access, and sometimes if a farmer um, intends to access their crops, they would be actually shot. Um, this is added, of course, to 70% of the fisheries being destroyed. So the livelihood in terms of the crops in the fisheries is utterly being destroyed. Mm. That brings us back to the situation that people find themselves in. There is little or no food uh, and queuing for baked beans. Yeah, uh, I mean, famine is practically in the making in northern Gaza in particular and in the rest of Gaza as well. But in northern Gaza, because it's completely cut off from even the slightest trickle of aid that has been that had been before uh, going on. There's three thousand, uh, three hundred thousand people in northern Gaza, and now they are without any aid, and aid is not reaching there whatsoever. And it's been systematically denied uh, um, uh, access to aid to that area. Um, um, I mean, malnutrition is rampant among children, pregnant women. Mm. Practically every man, woman and child now 
are on the brink of famine. And uh, as you said in your introduction, Michael, people are basically drinking wastewater, wild leaves, um, uh, you know, anything they can get their hands on because, uh, and, I mean, famine is actually in the making. Our staff and partners in Gaza are, told us this week that uh, people were, uh, you know, resorting to anything really and that the children that they have screened for malnutrition have shown uh, upwards of a 30%, 13% of malnutrition malnutrition rates. Some of Mm. those are extreme malnutrition. Some children are actually wasted. Mm. Sounds very familiar. Sounds very like what we learned in school as young children about uh, the Irish famine after the uh, failure of uh, the potato crop and the lengths that people went to eating grass uh, in the case of our ancestors eating whatever plants people can find in Gaza at the moment, uh, this before what is expected to be famine, which is when people die because of starvation. But you've already heard in Oxfam uh, reports of death by starvation. Yeah, yeah, this is absolutely correct, Michael. And last time we spoke, we talked about uh, the IPC report uh, indicating that 80% of people who are starving around the world are actually in Gaza. The small strip in the Eastern Mediterranean contains 80% of people who are starving um, uh, to death. And this is more true now than it was a month ago when we last spoke. So, um, I mean, uh, I mean, this is very real. And uh, 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 the, the, actually the risk of genocide is, cannot be clearer or higher with with uh, 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 Israel dis- disregarding the ICG, ICJ rulings, the most preliminary of which, the most basic of which, is just allowing aid in, uh, and especially to northern Gaza, just for the minimum amount of uh, food or medical supplies that these people need. Yeah. Um, are, are you able to paint a, a picture for us, Edward, of uh, the day in uh, a life of somebody who's living in uh, the refugee camp in Rafa at the moment? Well, um, I mean, the people in Rafa, uh, the, the tent cities, as they call them now, um, uh, are 100% dependent on any trickle of aid that comes in, 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 in into the area. And that's already been largely decreased since uh, uh, since actually the the ICJ ruling on February twenty uh, twenty six, uh, so um, so less aid not, is getting in. So less aid is getting in now. Mm. Less, I mean, uh, so for example, uh, around one hundred fifty trucks between January first and twenty six went in to to Rafa. Now between February twenty six and uh, sorry January twenty six and and February. Uh, uh, 26 a couple of days ago and less than two-thirds of that have entered Rafa. so not more less have entered Rafa. so the daily life of a person in Rafa is just getting increasingly mm. desperate that on top of the looming military operation that is already started but only with aerial bombardment now which is horrific enough but um, even the ground operation uh, uh, to, um, I mean, being to advertise every day, mm. this is 
the horror is added to that. Uh, to, uh, it must know. be impossible to sleep. I, I mean, Netanyahu is saying he has to proceed in order to uh, achieve victory in his war uh, against Hamas. But for people in those tents, it must be impossible to sleep. The smallest, tiniest noise at night must keep you awake. That's if uh, you've managed to get any sleep. And then you wake up to what? Uh, the same prospect that you might be bombed and there's nothing to eat or drink. This is absolutely right. And this is sadly just a small part of the horrific reality, really. Um, I mean, t- um, when we talked to our partners last week in Gaza and our staff in Gaza, uh, I mean, they were, I mean, for the most time, they mm. were just speechless. And they, I mean, they actually said that uh, this is beyond anything that is huma- humanly Describable. I mean, we, we cannot describe, yeah. Uh, and why don't they leave is the obvious question. Well, where do they go, as Joseph Burrell uh, put it, uh, to the moon? Uh, because there is nowhere for them to go. A lot of these people came from the north to southern Gaza, now to Rafa. Uh, what's the situation in the north? Well, um, I mean, I, as I told you earlier, Michael, the situation in the north is even more—it's even more horrific. Um, and uh, uh, for weeks now, there has been no um, aid coming in, um, and it, it, this is because of a mixture mixture of um, the denial of access on the one hand, the roads not being uh, fit for trucks to uh, go in on the other hand, um, and uh, you know many other factors, but. The bottom line is aid is not coming in, and uh, 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 um, the people are on the brink of famine, and that's in the north even more apparent than any other part of Gaza. Were people encouraged uh, to hear the American president Joe Biden say yesterday that he expects a, a ceasefire to be announced by Monday? I mean, we're we're very hopeful as well that this would be the case, and we're hoping for it not to be a temporary ceasefire, but to be a permanent one because. Um, I mean, we've been calling for a ceasefire since October 7th, pretty much. But unfortunately, a ceasefire alone cannot, I mean, a temporary one especially, cannot do much now for Gaza. I mean, this is the scene of utter, complete destruction now in Gaza. It it needs a lot more than just a ceasefire. But it's actually, I mean, uh, of course, it's very welcome news if Mm. it happens. If it happens, uh, I I think... uh uh, not everybody is as confident as Joe Biden, but uh, the 40 days uh, that they're talking about uh, may give time uh, to agree on a permanent ceasefire. Uh, whether it's 40 days or, or if uh, the conflict comes to an end, uh, is Oxfam ready to get aid into Gaza? I, I'm sure you are, and I'm sure that all of uh, the humanitarian aid organisations in the region are more than ready at this stage and just waiting for the green light. Um, yeah, you're, you're correct, Michael. And not not only that we're ready to get aid in, but actually we've been trying our level best to to get aid in while actually the bombing was on. And our hats are off uh, to, to our staff in, in and the partners on the ground. Um, God knows the horrors that they've been enduring just to try to keep any thin light of aid going in and a little bit of food to the people, a little bit of community kitchens. I mean, they're they're pretty much, I mean, making of it what they can. 
uh, from the very little resources that they have right now. And then if a ceasefire happens, uh, I'm sure uh, th- that will be ready to scale up. Uh, is there a situation, do you believe, uh, at the moment, Edward, uh, that there will be uh, a number of deaths by starvation and if uh, a ceasefire doesn't come about in the very near future that uh, we're looking at widespread famine in Gaza? Yeah, unfortunately so. And then um, I think, uh, I mean, the, the world has realised and I think the Irish people know very well and realise this very well, but uh, 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 the world has realised that um, with every other call for a ceasefire or aid to get in being defied uh, by Israel, at time could be passing for just these calls to to uh, to be the only calls for uh, for uh, Israel or for a solution to the situation and uh, we've been i mean very happy to learn just last week that uh, the motion by the Shannad uh, has passed unanimously uh, in in very strong words uh, trying to not only call for a ceasefire not only for humanitarian aid and release of hostages but also for it's uh, uh, an arm, arms embargo in Israel. I mean, I mean, Ireland doesn't, I mean, doesn't sell arms to Israel, but then to use its, uh, you know, its um, its position on international level to actually advocate for an arms embargo for weapons bound for Israel not to be passing through Ireland uh, and and for the suspension as well for the uh, of the EU Israel association agreement. Uh, because it broke its human uh, human rights article, um, so I mean we we should be calling more in be able to pressure Israel and its allies into uh, you know um, stopping stopping the bombing. Okay, I'm sure people listening to us, Edward, will continue to support the vital work uh, that Oxfam. Uh, it is doing in Gaza through your partners and indeed elsewhere for that matter. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning. Edward Saloom, Humanitarian Advo- uh, Advocacy Lead with Oxfam Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, the European Parliament has uh, passed uh, the Nature Restoration Law. Uh, there's uh, been some reaction to this uh, decision uh, from farming groups here. The ICSA says it's disappointed. It's created a lot of concern among farmers who see this as heavy on compulsory actions and targets, but light on funding commitments. The ICMSA says uh, there's a widening credibility gap between uh, the various EU institutions and the real world of farming. Its president, Dennis Drennan, has said nobody is able to explain to what state of pre-production farmers would have to restore now that it appeared that the state was intent on effectively ordering farmers Uh, but they don't know what they're going to have to restore productive land uh, or more over, he said, what was the reference year to be used. Is it 1970, 1924, 1900? Uh, And he says you're talking about taking land out of production and restoring it with some vague fashion to a non-productive state but without any dedicated budget to achieve this and on the basis, presumably, that we can cross the funding bridge when we come to it. 
The IFA uh, is somewhat less critical, uh, but it says there's a vacuum of information around this legislation. And even though legitimate farmer concerns uh, have not been adequately addressed, the EU has pushed ahead with uh, the introduction of the law. Farmers are not anti anti nature. We're not anti-taking measures on our farms that are going to improve water quality and reduce emissions and restore biodiversity. We've done an awful lot in that space. That's the point I've been making to you earlier on. We're not getting credit for that. Um, the issue of re-wetting, we're told that there's enough state lands by the Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnell, to meet our re-wetting criteria. So after that, it's how nature restoration laws are going to be implemented and what will the asks of farmers on their farms be um, when, when uh, we get into that space and... It'll have to be passed in Brussels first before we know how, uh, we'll say, Malcolm Noonan's Department of Parks and Wildlife are going to, mm. uh, what they're going to, the asks of farmers and how they're going to implement it will be. Well, that's the IFA President Francie Gorman. As we mentioned, it has been passed in Brussels with the support of Fine Gael MEPs, one of those. Colm Markey joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for your time. Uh, have you sold Irish farmers out? Absolutely not. The last thing I would do is sell, sell Irish farmers out. I think in reality, we've worked hard to make sure that this is actually a workable, if you like, and that there's flexibilities within it. I think that's, that's, that's the work with, that's been ongoing for a long while at this stage. From, from the beginning, uh, like I would have voted against it at committee level, would have looked to get significant changes to it. We did over through, let's say, the, the previous vote. And then when it came back with this final trialogue vote, I, I felt I was in a position to support it because, uh, as Francie Gorman mentioned, the like of the peatland piece has been dealt with primarily by state lands. There's no mandatory requirement on any farmer to comply with that. And if they are, they, they ultimately they'll have to be funding found to compensate them for it. Ah, so, like, OK. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, that, you just contradict yourself in a, in a, a short breath. No, not at all. But I'm saying you said it won't, it's no not farmer will be obligated, and if they do, they'll be uh, have to be compensated for it. They won't be obligated, and if they are, then they'll be paid to do it. <laughs> you That's said they I'm won't saying. be obligated, no, but if they are, I mean, you, you can't say that they but won't they be obligated. To, but there's a chance they, that they, no, that no. they will be obligated. With all due respect, if they choose to do it, they can be compensated to do it, or they can be rewarded to do it. That's exactly where it's left. How much no will they, uh, responsibility well, on? How will they be rewarded? Well, well, Various ways. So, like the, the the situation in the past is where th- things like this would have come along. There'd be a mandatory requirement on farmers to do them, and essentially, what what we would hear from farmers is it's more actions been asked of farmers for the same or reducing pot of money. The reality is, and I don't think this is about the money, by the way, and I don't want to get caught up in a financial argument. Over but are you saying they the will be compensated? Is, I am saying the farmers will not be asked to do this. But you, you did say they all. will be compensated, did you not? I would say that that money would be, if farmers are asked to do some of it, then they would be rewarded for doing it. So they well, do it purely well, what's on, a, the plan? on a voluntary what's the, what, what's the basis. Plan? Voluntary. What's the plan? How much will the plan they be rewarded? No, no, wait now. The plan is that it will be done on state lands. The light of peat extraction sites was not included mm. originally. All those have been yeah. included. Other, other state lands like Quilt lands mm. are included as well. Okay. The reality is that they are, they are, just bear with me, they are the ones that are there to, in order to meet the requirement for 2030 and 2040. The, the question is whether there will be enough land in that regard when you go on to the like of 2050. I suppose that's where lies the question. But the reality is, at that stage, 
if there's a need to, to re-wed extra land, there will have to be incentivization because it can, it's not, it's wrote into it that it will not be done mandatorily. So that's, that's one element of it. The other mm. element then, I suppose, is just the, the broader biodiversity piece. But you're not and able to say, like, you're not able to say how farmers will be compensated. But sure, they won't have to be compensated because the, the land, it's been done on state land. That is the, the, the key question. There is a difference, I'll be uh, afraid, I'm going to take you through. If that's not adequate... Uh, as you said, and if farmers are, you've just said, if farmers are asked uh, to re-wet it land, and rewarded to do. yeah, yeah. So It'll how much? That hasn't. That, that's twenty fifty, twenty forty. That's twenty years away. So we, we, at that stage, you'll have to put a, put a position in place. But it's not going to be mandatory. That's the, the fundamental difference. If you look at cap payments in the past. Uh, so if farmers refuse, if farmers refuse, will the state be fined? Well, the, 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 it's not going to come to that in the short or medium or even medium term. The reality is there's plenty of uh, extraction sites. There also is plenty of the like of quilt land. On top of that, there are flexibilities built into it. If it's of, uh, if it's impacting, let's say, we'll say. Uh, uh, public infrastructure, if it's not in the public interest, if it's not in the interest of food security, there's a number of mitigations built in that will protect against that. The reality is what we want to do here is we want to create a scenario where farmers can and not be forced. And that's the situation we've got into, and I think that's a positive one, rather than a situation where you'd have in the past where you got the back of farmers up. And clearly, mm. the misrepresentation of this at the moment has got the back of people up. So you're I think we have to get down to the to the, to the clarity of, of what the situation. So you're you're, you're hoping um, that farmers will volunteer, uh, and you won't have to force them. No, no. I where, where we're at at the minute is there's commitments in relation to state lands that will deliver for 2030 and mm. 2040. 2050 is 20 years away, and you can be guaranteed there'll be all sorts of changes in policy between now and then. But there's no provision for farmers to be forced to do anything in this. There's only a scenario whereby farmers may be incentivized and encouraged if they wish to, to take advantage of. What that if, will be the scenario. What if state land is neighbouring private land? That's an issue, and I think that's something we have to look at very clearly. Uh, the, the reality is, if you're net boundarying, let's say, state land, uh, the suggestion is, certainly on the board of the Mona sites, that they will manage to outer drain uh, in the same way as they always did, so it'll create a barrier between the two sets of land. I think we have to keep an eye on this to make sure it works effectively. I fully accept that there's a concern there, and I'd be the first one to, to, to look at that. We've no real experience of it to date. There's a lot of uh, Bordenamona land has been rewetted to date, and it doesn't seem to be having a, a significant knock-on effect to neighbouring land. But it's certainly a thing. I suppose that's where I wanted to see the flexibilities. That's where I want to see realistic time frames around this, because things like that do have to be taken into account, and we have to be respectful of landowners and the impact on neighbouring lands. Even if a private landowner chooses to, to go down the road of voluntarily taking advantage mm, of mm. a rewriting proposal, it can't. It m- must ensure that it doesn't negatively impact the neighbours. Now, I've been down in the like of Offaly and looked at some of the situations where this was going on and looked at how the outer, outer boundary drain was being managed to make sure that it wasn't impacting negatively on, on the neighbouring land. And I think it, it is going to take work to get this right. But it's not, the other thing about this, it's not all just about re-wetting of, of peatlands. That's going to be primarily done in state lands. It's also about the whole biodiversity piece and how, uh, if you like, 
we can restore biodiversity without negatively impacting on agriculture. And I think that's the other piece of this we have to get right to. All right, well, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us. Time will tell. I'm sure how it'll all pan out. Uh, but that's uh, Colin Markey, Fine Gael, MEP. Now, let's uh, go back uh, to some more of your comments. Uh, and thank you to so many people who've uh, taken time to text us today. Uh, Peter and Dundalk uh, wondering about Enoch Burke in prison. Uh, he says, uh, as far as you can see, we have a, a community of diverse people. Uh, and is this any way to treat people? Well, I think when you breach court orders, uh, there's consequences. Like every action, there is a consequence, Peter. Uh, Dean, in touch about recycling bottles, he wonders if uh, the scheme doesn't defeat the purpose of having a green recycling bin at home that I pay for. Thanks uh, very much uh, for that, Dean. He says, I don't see any benefit in it. I think that's the point I I was making earlier on uh, when we were speaking uh, with uh, the convenience stores organisation. A lot of people have said that to me as well, Dean, that they used to recycle uh, by just putting it in the bin. Now, to do the same thing, it's a big job. Uh, But... Let's hope uh, that it benefits uh, the environment. Uh, Somebody else saying um, that RTE is a farce. Uh, To be honest, I just listened to the presenters on RTE and LMFM, uh, like this programme and lots of LMFM employees, present excellent programmes. But otherwise, uh, I listened to Morning Ireland uh, and some other programmes, but certainly not the presenters on their light entertainment programmes who are making a fortune to add it's mostly LMFM that I support. But thank you for your support, Margaret. Margaret sending us that text today. Uh, And uh, we'd uh, another text then uh, from somebody who says, you're right, Michael Emer Tobin knows exactly what she's at while herself and her brother were canvassing in Navan uh, a while ago uh, about anti-social behaviour. there was uh, a small amount of people involved in the trouble, uh, which was easily dealt with, I think is the gist of that. Thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, And uh, to everybody who's been in touch, I'll try to come to some more of the Commons uh, after the break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the Irish Hotel Federation has uh, been meeting uh, this week and hearing from hoteliers around uh, the country and uh, how difficult doing business has come in certain circumstances. Let's speak to Kieran Reedy of uh, the Irish Hotels Federation. He's uh, the general manager at uh, the Johnstown Estate Hotel and Spa. Very good morning to you, Kieran. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it's very hard to get a hotel room in this country and a lot of people will say they become very expensive. Why is that the case? Uh, good morning, Michael. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I wouldn't say it is very hard to get a hotel room in the country um, and certainly there's a lot of comp- uh, a lot of uh, value to be got um, up and down the country at the moment. I suppose 70% uh, of our tourism industry is outside Dublin and um, like take the Johnstown Estate here, for example. Uh, there's a lot of uh, value to be got uh, on rates. I suppose one of the um, um, one of the things we are hit with uh, over the last couple of years are costs which have skyrocketed um, in, in so many different areas. And your listeners will be well aware of it from, you know, utilities, energy, uh, food inflation, 68% increase as well. 
Uh, and I suppose uh, speaking with our members uh, at the AGM there over the last couple of days down in the wonderful uh, Sleeve Russell Hotel, um, like we are forecasting that we're going to see a further increase of in excess of 8% in operating costs uh, over the year ahead. So, um, like, it, it's an area, you know, VAT was one of the things that the government, uh, we believe, uh, could have done more on. Um, you know, the government made a decision to increase the VAT rate on tourism last uh, August, uh, bringing us into one of the third highest uh, tourism VAT rates uh, in Europe. So there's certainly a measure there that um, I, I believe that the government could do to help businesses uh, up and down the country and would help rates as well uh, mm. for hotels. Many would say that uh, uh, dispensations like that only lead uh, to higher profits. Um, I wouldn't agree. Uh, I know from our side of it, uh, if we were able to reduce our VAT rate, we certainly would be passing that on to our customer. Um, we want to attract customers into our businesses, and particularly the smaller businesses in rural Ireland, this, um, you know, the small coffee shop owner, uh, the pubs, the restaurants. Talking to members within this area, they're really struggling uh, at the moment with the costs that have been increased. Um, we've had a 12.5% increase on our payroll costs uh, this year as well. So there are measures that, that we need for the, for the viability of, of the industry and to remain competitive, competitive uh, as an island destination. We're concerned about our domestic market. We're concerned about our UK and European market. But the domestic market, um, it, it's a huge part of what we do here at the Johnstown Estate. Um, if, if the government were to look at bringing the VAT rate down to what we believe is 9% uh, sustainable tourism VAT rate, then certainly we will be passing that on to our customers. Mm. Uh, a lot of people have uh, concerns uh, that you don't pass it on to your staff. Uh, we do. Uh, I know from our uh, business here at the Johnstown Estate, we would certainly uh, be paying above minimum wage in, in a lot of, uh, in, in all of our um, uh, professions. Um, but um, like 12.5% increase in payroll, there's more payroll costs coming next year. Uh, government talking about increasing the rate uh, to a living rate to a living wage. Um, it's, it's the energy side uh, of costs that, you know, they're still 69% higher than where they were in 2018. And it's great to hear utility providers uh, talking about reducing rates, particularly in the domestic market. But our customers are really pinched uh, in their pocket at the moment through the cost of living. Mm. And the cost of hotels? I wouldn't say the cost of hotels. Again, you know, we, when you go online, you can look at uh, rates up and down the country. There's a lot of value to be got uh, throughout Ireland. Um, you know, 70% of our uh, accommodation business is outside Dublin. Yes, you know, there's times when there's peak demand uh, in, in the cities, but there is a lot of value out there. Mm. Did get do well to... Uh, get a hotel for uh, less than a hundred. Uh, wouldn't you uh, across the country over a weekend? Um, I disagree. I was only doing a research last week uh, on hotels. I came across a hotel in Dublin that was offering a ninety-nine euro rate. Uh, there's hotels down on a in weekend the west night. On a weekend night, on a okay. Friday night, okay. uh, mm -hmm. I've seen I've seen rates of one hundred and nineteen euros bed and breakfast uh, within this region uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and certainly down the west, um, I know there's lots of offers uh, out there um, that, that, that are coming across. Okay, well, that's what people want to hear, obviously, uh, because uh, people want to use hotels. Is there 
a risk uh, that when we hear about these exorbitant prices, as we quite often do, particularly in Dublin when big events are on, that it, it tarnishes everybody with the same brush. It does, and it, it's unfortunate uh, that when that happens. Uh, again, okay, there's a small number of hotels. There's going to be uh, peak dates, particularly around maybe events in Dublin. Um, but again, like take the Johnstown Estate, we are 35, 40 minutes uh, from Dublin city centre. Mm. Accessibility from here into the city is great and there's great value to be got. Yeah, well, it's a specialised hotel and it's a fabulous hotel and uh, something that I, I think people uh, really look for uh, in terms of uh, relaxing and so on. But uh, have you and other members of the Federation raised concerns with some of the, well, actually all of the Dublin hotels for the extortionate prices that they charge when there are popular events taking place? in the capital? I suppose from a federation, hotel federation point of view, yes, it's a conversation that happens. um, But as a federation, uh, it's not the federation's responsibility to dictate to members what what they can price or how they they manage their business. That's going to be an individual um, decision for each business. But it is something that is discussed. You know, we all talk about it when we meet. Uh, We've had some great conversations uh, over the last couple of days. Uh, in the city of Russell Hotel. And, you know, from an industry point of view, it should be uh, also recognised that um, the tourism industry here is supporting 270,000 jobs um, uh, nationally with over 9 billion euros of revenue uh, going into the economy. So it's a very important industry for the government um, to to recognise and hopefully they can do more for us in the costs of business that that we're experiencing. Very good. Thank you for joining us this morning, Kieran. Kieran Reedy you, is the general manager of uh, the Johnstown Estate Hotel and Spa. Now, uh, thanks to Mary as well. Mary has been in touch. She says, I recycle my plastic bottles, etc., in my bins that I pay for every month. I have grandkids' uh, seats in my car. I put my shopping in my boot. I don't see how putting them into my recycling bin makes any difference to the end result. Uh, no, except uh, that it does make a difference now, Mary, because you're down the 15 or 25 cent that you've paid as a, a deposit. Jerry and Navin says farmers take what they can, don't care about uh, the environment. Uh, the EU needs to come down harder on them. Paddy Duffy says famine means extreme scarcity of food. There was plenty of food produced in Ireland during the so-called famine. It was more than enough to feed the population. It just was not given to the Irish people. It was exported to England in Dead. Thank you uh, for your comment. Thanks to so many people who were in touch. Uh, apologies if I didn't come to your message today. We'll try to do that tomorrow. Uh, but that's where we have to leave you because our time has run out. Thanks to Maggie McGuire who researched Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie